All right, everybody, welcome back to the Frogs of War podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Plunkett, alongside Melissa Trebowasser, and we have a very special guest this week. Uh, thrilled to have him. He is a national writer for USA Today Sports, uh, Dan Wolken. Dan, thank you for joining us this evening. Yeah, glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me to come on. So you had uh, a couple interesting tweets about the TCU uh, football coaching situation, and I thought it would be fun to have you on to, to talk through those a little bit. Um, first and foremost, give me your uh, first reaction when you heard that TCU and Gary Patterson were uh, parting ways. Well, I'm sad in a, in a sense. Um, I, I've known Gary, you know, I think pretty well for a while and um, always found, I mean, I think he's one of the most interesting people in college football, always has been. Um, really like the guy, you know, and obviously in his heyday, TCU was one of the great coaches in the game and um, certainly a Hall of Famer. And it's just a reminder that that nothing goes on forever. And clearly the last few years had not gone well. And he kind of looked like a guy who maybe was losing a touch a little bit with the modern college athlete and uh, how to communicate to these Gen Z guys and all the changes in college sports and NIL just got to be adaptable. Uh, You've got to be pliable. And it just, um, I guess I wasn't surprised because you kind of saw it coming, but it wasn't pleasant for me or for college football that a guy that has accomplished as much as Gary Patterson and did as much for TCU kind of had to go out that way. You know, Dan, I think that that you bring up a lot of the points that TCU fans have been talking about over the last several years, and it's not living up to the standard that Gary set on the field and not really adapting to the off the field. And I feel like you've been relatively vocal in saying, not necessarily saying TCU made the wrong decision, but uh, being kind of against the decision that TCU made. But um, I mean, I think you just kind of said it. Do you think that TCU did what they had to do in order to adapt to what college football is today? Yeah, I would say, look, um, Gary, you know, if you let him sort of just hang on to the end and, you know, you just don't know what the trajectory is going to be and it could get worse. Um, I'm not saying TCU made the wrong decision in any way, shape or form. We'll find out. It's just, I guess, it's one of those things that given the importance that he has in the history of the program. And there's so many things. I mean, I remember Chris Del Conte taking me through the, um, uh, what do they call it? The founders club at, at Eamon Carter stadium uh, that they built. I mean, it's like the lobby of a five-star hotel and, you know, just like Gary Patterson is the reason they were able to raise all that money to, to do that and make that place as, as beautiful as it is. And so, yeah, you just, you just don't want a tenure that important to fall apart completely. He's not the first and he's not going to be the last guy who either stayed too long or let it fall apart a little bit. That that's just, that's just what happens in sports and especially football. Like it's always interesting when you look at college basketball, like coach K has been really good for a long time and it just never seemed like, the game changed in a way that sort of made him irrelevant. Uh, But that happens a lot more in football. 
and like Nick, someone like Nick Saban is really the the exception more than the rule because the sport does evolve so much. And I mean, I guess this is just sort of a long winded way for for me to say that um, I I don't think it was necessarily wrong that TCU made a change or that they felt like they had to go in a different direction. But it is crazy when you take a step back that a guy who's accomplished as much as Gary Patterson gets fired in the middle of the season, call it whatever you want, he was fired, and gets replaced by a guy who's not nearly as accomplished, will not nearly be remembered as as great of a coach as Gary Patterson. And yet, really, the reason TCU made the move when they did was because they were afraid that Texas Tech was going to get the jump on Sonny Dykes. And they felt like they had to do it right then so that they could get their – plan set and get dykes in the fold early on so again time will tell whether or not making this move improves tcu or whether it goes the other direction i am sort of out of the business of predicting how these things are going to go but it's just striking the way it went down so when we when we talk about replacing a legend like Gary Patterson. Obviously at some point Alabama is going to have to do that at some point. Yeah. We're talking about length of tenure. Iowa is going to have to do that with Kirk Ferentz. Uh, so we're, we're seeing, you know, th- this is, this is going to have to happen. It's, it's had to happen in the past with, with uh, other universities as well. What's, what's the recommendation then? Because I think, um, you know, with the early signing period, uh, forcing colleges hands to, to move a little bit sooner than they have in the past. And, and, you know, there's not necessarily another Gary Patterson out there right now. What would what would you have done differently if you were TCU? It's hard to say. You know, it sort of reminds me a little bit of the Virginia Tech situation with Frank Beamer. Uh, because Frank, the last couple years that he was there, it, it wasn't good. You know, the recruiting sort of went down a level and um, – they were pretty mediocre on the field and yeah, they didn't fire him, but it kind of felt like maybe there were some gentle nudges that, Hey, maybe it's time to do something else. And they went out very aggressively, got Justin Fuente who was at Memphis uh, had done a great job at Memphis. And really, I, I think for a few weeks they had their guy. And then basically at the end of the season, the last game was played and, pretty much immediately they acknowledged that Fuente was going to take over. And and in some ways he, he kind of felt like a guy who was in the same model personality wise as Frank Beamer and um, kind of stood for a lot of the same values, even kept Bud Foster's defensive coordinator. And then just for whatever reason, it didn't work. I was a hundred percent sure that that was going to be a great hire for Virginia tech. So is there a lesson from that? I, I don't know. I mean, I just think that every school's got to, get the best coach they can get. It's never easy to replace a legend in the Beamer situation. You kind of thought, Hey, maybe it might be a little bit easier because they haven't been good the last few years, but honestly that, that just didn't really work or didn't really play out that way. And, you know, I think for Sonny coming in to TCU, um, you know, he's got a lot of work to do on the roster. You know, that's the biggest thing is when these transitions happen usually the roster has diminished and I just think that's like that's going to be his biggest thing for the next you know two three years is just getting that roster in a place where they can run his system first of all and where they 
just upgrade the talent because I just I don't think TCU right now is talented enough to win at a high level in the Big 12. So when when we talk about uh, I have a couple questions for you about Dykes, especially, you know, your your thoughts on his his career as a head coach. But when you look at TCU as uh, just a, an institution and an opportunity for a head coach coming in, uh, what do you see from a national perspective uh, that maybe purple tinted glasses don't get in the way of as far as opportunity for TCU? I think a lot of people look at the reconfigured Big 12, which unfortunately will be after Texas and Oklahoma leave and say that you know, maybe TCU is a top two, three job in that league. Maybe maybe even the best job. Uh, certainly what Baylor's done, uh, they've elevated themselves tremendously and, and they've got a great coach in Dave Aranda. Uh, I think, you know, Cincinnati's coming in with a long history of success. UCF will be something different, I think, and unique for, for the Big 12 because you're bringing in a school from Florida. Uh, and, and obviously Houston's got an interesting program that, you know, has, has thrived uh, as kind of that off-brand Texas school. But, you know, I just think the location, the facilities, um, the commitment of, of TCU folks, uh, there's a lot to like about it. And, and they've, they've got that very, you know, private school type of vibe um, that, that appeals to a lot of folks. They've got a great brand because of Gary, uh, the uniform stuff, uh, which has always kind of made them interesting and unique to see what they're wearing every week. So, yeah, I just think like there's no reason why TCU can't start winning big 12 titles, especially in this new configuration of the league. The question is just going to come down to is Sonny Dykes the right guy to do it? Dan, I think it's interesting that you that you kind of ended with that. Um, it, it's, it seems like you're asserting that TCU targeted Sonny Dykes from the very beginning, um, despite, you know, Donati saying, you know, national search, blah, blah, blah. Are you a little surprised if, if it is this good of a job, um, which is what a lot of the national media have kind of painted it as, that that was the direction that they went? I think that in this day and age, um, it is very hard to do a coaching search and nobody really likes them. Nobody really wants to do them. For one thing, it's just risky. And, you know, you start with a group of candidates and you never know if an agent is playing you, if a guy is trying to get a raise and then you're left holding the bag and other candidates have already been snapped up. I think the way everybody would like to run a coaching search is you identify, you know, a couple people and you go after them and land them. And there's no doubt in my mind, like from the minute the job came open, Sonny Dykes was the guy that they wanted to go after. And it makes sense on paper. I mean, he's at a school that's nearby and he's done pretty well. Uh, the name, the Dykes name in the state of Texas uh, carries a lot of weight certainly knows the recruiting scene in and out, runs a system that fits Texas high school talent. I mean, it makes sense on, on a lot of levels. Um, so I think, you know, for Jeremiah and whoever else was involved in making those decisions at the highest level, you sort of weigh that and he wants the job and he would take it versus you're kind of going out in the marketplace and you're probably not going to, look at guys or, or 
because there's not many like Texas type guys who were really attractive candidates. So you're just kind of balancing two different style options. And the fact that they went with the one close to home who can perhaps get them in the door with more high profile recruits in, in, in the state, the logic of it is sound. It's just whether it will actually work. Yeah, I, th- I think that's where a lot of TCU fans are right now, especially after hearing Dyke speak uh, Tuesday at his introductory press conference. He, he said all the right things, seemed kind of like the CEO type of guy that that the board of trustees and the search committee were looking for. Um, but there still is that question of, uh, can he actually win big games when it matters? Obviously, his November record is uh, subpar at SMU. Um, and his record against 500 teams, uh, but winning teams is is uh, a losing record as well. Um, but when you think about uh, other candidates that were out there, you, you've talked about this a little bit. Obviously, TCU had Billy Napier on their list, Deion Sanders, however realistic that was. Kellen Moore was thrown around a little bit too. Um, when you when you started to see other names kind of coming out, was that did you ever consider anybody else like a serious candidate or did you feel like all of this is really just leading to Sonny Dykes? Yeah. I mean, I, I can't remember the exact timing of everything, but it was pretty apparent to me just based on people I had talked to that there was pretty much one real candidate for the job and that he, he was going to take it. Um, everything else. I mean, I'm not saying it was a waste of time or whatever. I mean, until the ink is dry on these contracts, then things can always fall apart or, people change their mind or there's a million stories like that. So you always have to have some other options. And also it's educational. Like it's not a bad thing to go sit down with Deion Sanders and just see, you know, see what you think. Um, But I never really felt like they were going to hire anyone. uh, But, but Sonny, Um, obviously I think Billy Napier was probably aiming for one of the big sec jobs I think that's really what he'd been waiting for. So I don't think TCU was ever probably in play to get him at the end of the day. And yeah, the Dion thing is interesting. It would, it would be out of the box. He's done a good job at, at Jackson State. I mean, the record is very good, but he does come with some issues and complications that uh, you have to sort of get comfortable with the fact that it's going to be all about Dion. He probably will get an FBS coaching job at some point. And it'll be highly entertaining and interesting to see how he does. But yeah, I mean, I don't think there's anyone who could have necessarily, you know, checked all the obvious boxes more than uh, Sonny, but there's, there are very legitimate criticisms of his track record too. So um, apparently the administration there is comfortable that uh, in, in the TCU situation, you'll get the best version of, of Sonny Dykes and, that's what they're betting on. You know, you talked earlier and we kind of touched on this on, on what a role the NIL recruiting marketing all plays in today's uh, landscape is, is Sonny Dykes is maybe who he is, but it seems like the staff that he's building at TCU is unlike anything that that program has seen. Um, How much of an impact can guys like Brian Carrington and um, you know, Rashad samples at all have on what TCU's future could be. I always say that in many ways, a coach's tenure will be determined by what happens in the first 50 days of of their 
tenure um, because there's no question that hiring the staff is the most important thing coming out of the gate. It's, it's 100% going to determine and set the bar for the kind of success that they can have early on. And these days, especially, I mean, there's just not a ton of patience for long rebuilds. Um, people want to see results. They want to see improvement. They want to see recruits early. And you know, even if the team in the first year or two loses some games, it's those things that people can hold on to that, that motivate them to kind of hang in there until, until it starts to turn on the field. So, you know, I don't, I don't know that I'm necessarily qualified to like go down the list of everybody that he's bringing onto that staff and evaluate them. I'm not an expert on, on assistant coaches really, but uh, there's no doubt that, that the recruiting component, getting guys who were tied in, at the high schools in the state, people who've recruited and know every nook and cranny of, of that talent base, that that is very, very important. Awesome. Uh, well, Dan, I just want to say thank you for taking the time this evening. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on and, and enjoy all the work that you do. Y'all can all check out Dan over at USA Today and on Twitter at Dan Wolken. So thanks so much for, for joining us this evening. Yeah, no problem. Thanks.